Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. As development teams grow, the number of code repositories used by them grows as well. Over time, this ends up making some things more complicated than they have to be. You've probably heard of companies putting everything into a single repository. Is this the answer for you? In this episode, we're going to discuss the use of mono repos along with their benefits and some of their pitfalls. Every case is different, and we don't have a strong opinion one way or the other. Instead, we're going to give you the information you need to make your own decision. But before we get started, Will, what mono thing has been bugging you lately? I don't know. I'm trying. Actually, stereo. So, you know, last week we were talking about getting Linux for recording. Yeah, so what is very interesting is that the audio output for the headset through the, the main front jack or through the monitor plug on the back of the Scarlet, by default in Ubuntu Studio, it is muted, which took me, let's just say that it took me substantially longer than I feel smart about to figure that one out. <laughs> so... Yeah, we tested right before recording here and we got good quality audio going into Zoom. Um, there's still more stuff to do to be able to actually mm-hmm. really switch, but I'm super stoked by that because now it, it all makes sense. So I really want to give a shout out to the people at the um, Linux audio forums on Reddit. That helped a bunch. Awesome. Yeah, and really walking me through it and going, okay, here's what you need to know. Here's, here's how you even approach this. Here's how you tell if it works. And that got me past the point where I was stuck. So I really appreciate that. That's wonderful. Yeah. So how about you? Uh, My arm is feeling a lot better. Still have a little bit of mild numbness and stuff and not 100% strength back. The doctor, I went to see him Wednesday of last week, so the day after we recorded. And uh, he extended the steroids and muscle relaxers. He even gave me a smaller dose of the muscle relaxers to take in the daytime. Yeah, I took one on Friday and I had to push back going to the gym by an hour because I still felt intoxicated. Yeah, so that was interesting. But by noon, I was feeling all right. So I, I went on. But uh, yeah, last week I didn't do any any lifting. Today I did uh, do a little bit. Today, uh, yesterday would have been arms and shoulders, but uh, I had... Uh, we. Did some uh, some stuff over my lunch break, so I didn't go till later, and so I just ran because I didn't have the time. But uh, so today I did uh, did arms and shoulders, not at full capacity on my right arm, but uh, getting a lot closer. So um, that's basically it. I mean, that's sort of been the the thing I've been dealing with this past week. So saving money is hard especially when the medical bills start piling up because you're getting old (laughs) oh man 
Lucas Casares is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Yeah, and just like us here at Complete Developer Podcast, he focuses on helping you not only establish a real plan, but to take action on that plan so that you can live your best life. Investing in financial planning services really comes down to whether or not you can actually improve your finances with those services. And with the help of Level Up, there's a compounding impact of making better financial decisions that will easily pay for itself. Yeah, Level Up has a really unique pricing model that will help you no matter where you are in your financial journey, whether you're just starting out as a junior developer or you're a grizzled senior who's getting old and needs to pay medical bills. (laughs) That's you, man. Not me. I just don't go to the doctor. It's cheaper that way. Lucas is also a fiduciary for his clients, which means he's not here to sell you a product, but to actually guide you to a better financial situation. And guys, you can catch his podcast, Techie Personal Finance Bootcamp, where he covers financial topics you probably face and interviews other IT professionals who share how they navigated their careers. You can also learn more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. Most development shops with multiple departments, software packages, or teams will gravitate towards having separate repositories for their various bits of code. If they have to share code, they stand up a server somewhere to serve up things like NuGet and NPM packages for whatever system happens to need them. This works pretty well as long as those separate pieces of code don't need any sort of integration. However, this isn't likely for most environments. After all, unless you're doing contract development work for other companies, those disparate pieces of code that you've scattered across multiple repositories are probably going to have to work together at some point. Once this happens, all other kinds of issues start to crop up. Teams don't understand each other's code. Release timings now have to be coordinated as you make you know, cross-cutting changes across the system. You get weird regressions from tiny library updates that happened in one project and didn't in another. You have difficulty testing. It's all kinds of fun stuff, uh, including deployment orchestration, which is a whole other can of worms that you probably really don't enjoy if you've ever gotten into it. And it also leads to communication problems and political nonsense over time. Now, after running into this, you've probably also read about other organizations who put all their code into a single repository. It sounds like something that might help, but will it? Like anything else, there are always downsides. And like most things, at least half the downsides that can happen are things that didn't immediately come to mind when you first considered the idea. In this episode, we'll talk about what a mono repo is, as well as the upsides and downsides of using one. In the aftercast, we'll talk about things managers need to do before their team migrates to a mono repo because there are impacts beyond just the code. So, jumping on in, what is a mono repo? It is a single repository, a monolithic repository for all of an organization's code instead of separate repositories. So, instead of multiple repos in Git, you'd have a single repository structure. Now, This is contrasted with the idea of a monolith, right? These could be microservices living in the same repo. Okay, I was going to ask that, and I was going to ask if you have multiple products. Right, you'd put them all in there. 
you put them all in there. So all of the code for all the products would be in one repository. Right. Uh, which is a very interesting thing in terms of like orchestrating the developer pipeline and some of those things. There's stuff it makes easier and there's stuff it makes harder. You're picking your poison. Mm-hmm. So along with the mono repo comes necessary changes, obviously, such as a build pipeline that can allow parts of the system to be built instead of the whole thing. Especially if you have, like Will was saying, microservices, or if like you have multiple products all in the same repo, you're not going to want to build everything out every time that you deploy. You'll want to be able to deploy just specific things. Right, just the stuff that had changes. Um, and that's the other thing is, is a lot of times when you're testing, you're also looking for the impact of, okay, when I change this service, did it break something else? And I'm running integration tests and, okay, if I've got to go deal with that, then i got to deal with it. But maybe I don't want to redeploy those because that does take up a lot of time. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, and it's, it's a bit ridiculous to uh, do that because you have, oh, basically like, it hasn't touched any of this other stuff, so why do that? We have a, a project that I worked on not long ago that was uh, one API and multiple Angular projects. Yep, that's exactly uh, what we have. Yeah, and they were all in the same repo, but the way we built out the build pipeline was, hey, if the API was touched, it updates that. If one app was touched, it updates that. Of course, if any app was touched, it pretty much has to update the library. I don't know, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, we're we're kind of struggling with this now too. And so there's been discussions happening. That's why this episode is, you know, why I wrote it. Yeah. That and I was kind of out of time and that came up as a topic of discussion. I'm like, oh, well, oh yeah, it's an episode while I research this. So monorepos also tend to have multiple programming languages and even platforms involved uh, versus just a single one in a polyrepo setup. So for instance, if your company had an Angular app and a React Native app and maybe a you know, another staff app that's just a old school website and an API in the background, it, those might all be in the same repo. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen this with um, everything like the... UI and API, and like I said, like multiple UIs for the that are touching the same API all in the same repo. But like, would you have multiple APIs in there too? Let's say if you have like multiple products that don't exactly touch. Yeah. Well, okay. So here's an example. Google uses a single mono repo for 95% of its single source of truth code base. So like. Google Chrome and Android are on their own, but most of their products are in one. You can imagine, like if it works for Google, it should be workable for you if you're willing to do Google things, which I'm not, but <laughs> yeah, that's a, um, but it, it's, it's, it's definitely doable, right? There's, there is tech that makes that, that work. Yeah. So similar to the build pipeline, the deployment pipeline, for the mono repo is going to be quite a bit more complex. And that's what I was talking about where we had the the different builds and the different deploys in the sort of pseudo mono repo. It was like, it didn't have all of our stuff in it, but it had like, it had all of it related to one thing. So we had three Angular libraries and then an API all in the same repo. Okay. 
Yeah, we've got that. We've got our lambdas. We've got all the QA code. We've got uh, like these service integrations. So there's like step functions and even more lambdas and API gateway configs. And I mean, like all that stuff is in one bucket and managing it is is tricky. See, the thing is, is like, you know, being able to say, okay, this piece of code changed. I'm going to build it. I'm going to push it out. But what happens when you got multiple environments? How do you define that something changed? Because you got a build pipeline that's just putting artifacts out, right? But now that deployment location has to know what it's got on it to figure out what artifacts it needs to pull over mm-hmm. for a change because it may maybe nobody deployed to it for a month. And you know, it's behind on some core service or something. Like that gets complex very, very quickly. Of course, the other alternative is to just build everything and deploy everything, which you can do if you can throw enough money at it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And yeah. time. It takes time for some of that too, depending on how big your monolith is. Right. I mean, I can't imagine Google doing that over and over again. I, I feel like like any tiny thing Google does to become more efficient saves thousands of dollars. Like there's stuff that you or I could spend. If you and I together wrote something and it took us two weeks and it saved us a penny, like us writing that same thing for Google would probably pay our salary. Right? The amount saved. So they're a very odd user case. And so we got to be careful not to suggest what they do just because they do it. That's very true. That's very true. So let's talk about the upsides of a mono repo, because this is probably the stuff that you're initially thinking, plus some other things that you probably didn't think about. Uh, the first is, is that all the code and the knowledge of that code base, which is encoded in the code, but there's also help commentary. There's probably mm-hmm. docs. There's all that kind of stuff. That's all in one place rather than spread across multiple repositories that are maintained by different teams. So like if somebody has it, they've got it. They can get to where, whatever they need. Yeah, that would definitely make looking up stuff like if another team has done something. And I've had this happen where I was explaining why our current setup wouldn't work for what they were asking for. I was like, we can do it, but this is what it's going to cost to do it. And they're like, well, they did it on this other team. And I'm like, yeah, that's because they were talking directly to their own database and were able to do that. We're talking through a third-party API and we, we can't do that. So like we just don't have they don't have the endpoint that does that. Uh, we can make that happen, but here's what it's going to cost. And uh, that's a common conversation that developers have with uh, with product owners. But uh, yeah, like I, I really liked it because the when we we're having that conversation, I was told, oh well, hey, this other team did it, and so I had to go look up their code, which I do have access to. But if it was all in a mono repo, I could have just looked where I was already and not had to go anywhere. It's been saving maybe 20 minutes. Yeah. Well, and it, it's, it saves you a lot of political conversations too, because if that was a team you didn't get along with. Yeah. I mean, on either end, you could spend days with no productivity. Mm-hmm. It's also a lot easier to share common code between projects, which reduces the overhead for microservices. So like when you have a, a microservice solution, you're going to have certain pieces that are always kind of the same, right? Like probably the way you're doing your logging, if you're going to CloudWatch logs or whatever, you're going to want that to kind of be the same or Azure, the name escapes me. Application Insights. Insights, yeah, which I use like every day and you'd think I would know the name of it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I got you, dude. My bad, man. But you're going to have pieces that are going to define how the apps interact. And plus, you're probably going to have some boilerplate for your microservices as well to say, okay, Mm -hmm. when they spin up, they do certain things and certain things have to happen. Yeah. Um, And you could put all that in a shared library 
Because if you put it in a package management system, now you've got to deploy that and you've got to handle versioning of that and it's disconnected from the stuff that it breaks. Yeah. yeah we do have we do have some, uh, some packages that we pull in and yeah, when we go in and make a change to that, we have to update it in all the apps. So yeah, that makes sense. It also, I, I kind of hinted at this a little earlier, but it also makes the code more discoverable. And you see all branches and follow modifications across the various projects. But this is really only true if you're consistent. Yeah, so you have to have a structure. And it's got to be like a known structure where a new dev can come in. You could say, okay, here's where we put libraries. Here's where we put our microservices. Here's where we put database scripts. Here's where we have whatever the other thing is. Because if it's just, you know, if it's broken by department, and then it's under there. It's like, okay, well, does he report to Steve? And Steve's over this. Well, but Steve was over this other thing before. So is he still reporting? You know, and, and you're trying to figure that out versus here's where it is in the file system. You lose. I've been through that one uh, at a couple of places too. And that was in the visual source safe days, which was even better. Oof. Um, oof, oof. Now, the release pipeline is also easier to see, assuming that you're shipping that with your repo, which I highly recommend. That should be in source control. The way you deliver software is part of the software. But it's it's easier to tell how to deploy the whole thing because you can see the deployment instructions for the whole thing. Oh, absolutely. Refactoring across services is easier and it's easier to keep the changes in sync as opposed to having different branches in different repositories. Right. So like you could make a change to a library and you could say, hey, Bob, in accounting, I'm making a change to this library. Here's the changes. You know, you're going to need to do these things. And Bob can either work on your branch or you know, your feature branch, assuming, or, or he can tell you what to do and you can do it. But it's not a thing where you make a change and it gets pushed all the way out. And then Bob finds out at the last minute that he's got to change something and he's scrambling, right? Like those changes can move together. Your reusable code does not have to live in a package management service. I mentioned this earlier. That is pretty annoying. Um, I've got an NPM repo here. I've got a NuGet server here and they're on my internal network. They are secured-ish. I would not do do it the way I did it in a corporate environment at all, um, but that's overhead, right? Like you got to deal with the Docker containers. You got to keep that thing up to date. You got to worry about security. You've got to worry about all that crap. Whereas if it's in your source control repository, you only have to worry about the repository, which you are already worrying about, right? Yeah. Hopefully. I mean, you should be. <laughs> if you're not, start. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> start worrying real hard. Yeah, about that. All right. And finally, for the upsides, it is easier to break down silos because the code base is all in one place. Right. There's a law of computing, which I can't remember off the top of my head that basically says the structure of your org will be reflected in the way that the code is broken up. Mm-hmm. Right. Because if you report to different people, the code base is split along those lines because otherwise accountability gets tricky. If you have it all in the same repo, that can be part of a strategy organizationally to break down silos. It may or may not work, but uh, it at least doesn't make it worse. Yeah. If you're a software engineer, you've been there. It's 9 p.m. You're finally unwinding from your work. Your phone buzzes with an alert. Something's broken. 
and your mind already racing at what could be wrong. Is it the server? Is it the network? Is it the deployment pipeline? Somebody messed something up in that mono repo. <laughs> now the whole team scrambling from tool to tool and messaging person after person to find and fix the issue. That won't happen if you get New Relic. New Relic combines 16 different monitoring products that you normally would buy separately. So engineering teams can see across their entire software stack in one place. More importantly, you can pinpoint issues down to the line of code so you know exactly why the problem happened and can resolve it quickly. That's why the dev and ops teams at DoorDash, GitHub, Epic Games, and more than 14,000 other companies use New Relic to debug and improve their software. Whether you run a cloud-native startup or a Fortune 500 company, it takes just five minutes to set up New Relic in your environment. That next 9 p.m. call is just waiting to happen. Get New Relic before it does. And you can get access to the whole New Relic platform and 100 gigabytes of data free forever. No credit card required. Sign up at newrelic.com CDP. That's N-E-W-R-E-L-I-C dot com slash CDP. NewRelic.com slash CDP. All right, so now let's talk about some of the downsides for mono repos. Yeah, let's put a little rain on the parade there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So first off, your build pipeline will take longer to run in its entirety. And this may mean that you need to add mechanisms for building and deploying just a portion of the system when it's the only code that has changed. Yeah, we definitely did that with uh, like a pseudo mono repo that uh, that I worked on last year. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was it's a lot more complicated in the the build pipeline. But once you get it figured out, it, it it's not terrible. It just, it adds a lot of complication. It can get confusing. Yeah. With, with ours, what we did was, you know, Azure DevOps and you could say, Hey, if there's a change in this, in folders that match this, it's kind of a regex, I think maybe. Yeah. It's like a pattern. I'm not actually sure it's a real regex cause I just copy and paste it. I don't write it, but you say when it changes under these folders, then these things need to happen. These people need to be on the, uh, you know, the PR approval, we have a bunch of rules like that, which is the other thing you're going to be doing a lot of. Yeah. Now, testing everything is also going to take longer because there's more stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're running the tests for potentially all the things versus just your little slice of the world. Uh, so you may also want to have some kind of scoping mechanism for your tests, which honestly you ought to have anyway because other, otherwise you can't iterate quickly mm -hmm. just in general. If you, yeah. you know, if you have to run the whole suite. Now, that said, you might want to occasionally run the whole suite when you make a change if it touches multiple places, but not everything, just to make sure it doesn't... Or if you're running it in... I would say if you're like doing microservices or libraries and stuff, that's going to touch a lot of stuff. So I would want to run the whole thing myself. Yeah. It's more like you want to have that ability there for the developers. And then mm -hmm. you want to be able to run a full one before you deploy it into production, probably. Yes. And you got to support both use cases. You sounded like huh. Sean Connery just then when he said yes, by the way. That's uh, because I had some carbonated water in my mouth when I was trying to talk. I should have... <sighs> Book fall on your head. Yep. Oh, my goodness. 
Now, yeah, the redeploying things that are changed by shared resources, you know, is, is going to happen. Sometimes you will be surprised at the things that change as a result of something because, you know, package A depends on package B, C depends on A and B, D depends on E and A and B. What happens when you get F and it depends on B and E? Yeah. Well, you, you get surprised is what happens. Mm-hmm. You, so, you, you know, you're going to have to kind of think about things uh, at a larger perspective for that. Yeah. Well, because developers can easily see the shared code and how it interacts with the rest of the system, they are going to be more likely to change it. I mean, this is just, we do that sort of thing. Uh, while it is helpful over time, it does add a lot more work and complexity in the moment. Yeah, and you got to rein your people in too. Mm-hmm. Right, because you'll have somebody that's like, oh, I can just make this little change here and make this more efficient. It's like, yeah, but now you increase the testing surface, which you probably already did doing that in, in a non-mono repo situation. It's just that code that you could mess with wasn't visible to you, so you didn't do it. Yeah. So you definitely have to, educating the team is going to be really important here. Oh, absolutely. Educating them and possibly even having policies around it so that your people who are doing your, who are reviewing your PRs can go in and be like, hey, no, you're not allowed to do that. And here's the policy that states that. So you need to go back and undo it. Or, hey, this is a really good idea, but it's not going in the story. Yes. We'll put a ticket in the backlog for it and prioritize it, but this has to go out. That's the one that seems to be a big problem. Uh, Another big problem is that because you have everybody in the same code base uh, with, you know, touching shared code and those things, merge conflicts get a lot nastier and they are more likely uh, now, if everybody stays in their lane and they just do certain things and they kind of keep their scope low, it's not going to hurt too bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're also really, really going to want to be careful about your branching policy. That's going to probably have to change if you've had, you know, if you've gotten used to having two month long branches, that's over. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna go for short term branching on that for sure. Speaking of time, uh, downloading the entire repository is going to take longer and take up more space. Uh, local builds and test runs will have similar issues because you're you're just going to have to do it all or have complicated local builds too. Yeah, or you may just be building, you know, part of it. Uh, yeah. You know, like if you're relying on on things like queuing infrastructure and stuff that is semi-disconnected where it's like, "Hey, this thing pushes stuff into a queue and something else handles it later." And your verification process says, "Okay, the thing is in the queue and it looks like this." Versus, okay, it had to go flow all the way through the other system. You know, you can get away, get away with a lot more locally and, and still have some speed. It is going to force you towards shallow, short-lived branches and frequent merges. Because uh, if you keep a branch out there a long time, it really hurts to put it back in. Mm-hmm. And really, honestly, this is a discipline thing for teams and for the product owners and scrum masters and those things like to make sure that stories are appropriately chunked. This will force that up into that area of management because they'll they'll have to fix it or their team's going to flounder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if if you're a developer and you're pushing this, this is a nice backdoor way to get smaller stories. So now we have a few other points of interest, some some information that you need to know when evaluating uh, whether or not you want to go to a mono repo. And the first one is that you're going to want to get used to using Docker containers. Otherwise, configuration of the disparate projects and 
basically cleaning up after them gets complicated fast. Yeah. And somebody will put something out there that writes a bunch of crap to disk or, you know, like you have a junior dev that doesn't understand the difference between log.error and log.debug. And somehow that gets in there and your entire development team is running that sucker on their desktop. Well, if it's not in a Docker container that's getting blown away, people run out of drive space. Yeah. You know, like that's a great example of of cross-contamination. And so you, you're going to want to get comfortable with containers. It also makes it a lot easier to just not have to deal with other people's config. It's like you will specify how it's configed. Mm-hmm. I don't care because I, I'm not on your project. I'm just dependent on it. Um, and it, put, it puts the responsibility where it needs to be. It really does. It really does. Yeah. And, you, and you, you have to learn to do that with distributed systems. Yeah. You also have to be more disciplined uh, in order to keep things loosely coupled. Because there's going to be a lot of use cases where you cannot be connected to something. You know, either mm-hmm. you can't run that many containers or you know, it's in a weird state or whatever. If your code fails because some other service is not there, you're going to find that out. Of course, that's true of any distributed system. But typically, if you're doing a mono, you know, mono repo with microservices, you're going to feel like you can get away with this more than you actually can. Mm-hmm. And so you need to be kind of cautious on that. It's, it's, it's like owning a buffet and watching your weight. Like you need to be cognizant of the fact that there's the fried shrimp out there are good and you probably don't want to be walking through there every day. Yeah. Yeah. I would like some fried shrimp right now, actually. Um, Did you have fried shrimp uh, the other day when we got together? It's like the first time in like two years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. So finally, you're going to want to use more advanced deployment strategies. I mean, we've kind of hit on this a little bit, but things like Canary or Blue Green, because full deployments will take some time and you need to avoid downtime and data corruption during the process. So Will, you want to describe these two strategies that you suggested? The one I've seen uh, used was Blue Green. And basically what you do is you have a either a subset of your environments or like a uh, similarly sized uh, copy of the environment. So you would do this more with like your cloud infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And you you spin up to that. And then you start shifting load to it. And you got you to gotta kind of try to keep things in sync. And you make sure it does not explode yeah. before you ro- roll the thing live. Now, Canary, I have not dealt with. Um, I've heard people talk about it. And it's a, it's a different way of figuring out the subset, essentially. But the idea here is is that, okay, you can't just say, okay, I'm going to put the websites all offline and I'm going to deploy all the crap because things need to be able to go up and down while you're rolling stuff out because you you can't have a service interruption for every rollout yeah, um, for the full size that that is there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's basically the idea. Now, you may be able to get by with a whole lot less than, than that. Like if you're, you'd be surprised how much you can scale up the amount of like web code and cloud stuff before you have to really think too much about that part. You have to think about what happens when version one tries to interact with version two. You got to worry about that, mm-hmm. but you may not have to worry about, okay, is it going to you know take the site down while I'm rolling out? You might just go, okay, spin it up, get it ready, get it behind the load balancer and then flip the traffic over to it. Yeah. Yeah, at, that. at some level, or you may just you may take a point of it because mm-hmm. uh, one thing I found 
basically everywhere I've worked is tests do not get written for performance. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when you shift something out there and it has a performance issue after, after being deployed, there's no real effective unit tests for those kind of things. And so people are completely surprised, Mm -hmm. you know, especially as you add new features, new database indexes, whatever. And so you're going to want to, to do it with part of your system and not the whole thing and have some way of keeping that from screwing stuff up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. is the other thing too. Uh, yeah. And your, your message bus type uh, setups can help with that because they can push to both systems and, and mm-hmm. those kind of things. Oh yeah. It is more to think about than just dumping all the code in one place. Mm-hmm. So guys, mono repos can ease a lot of the pain associated with development in organizations with multiple repositories. But they aren't always the best solution for your situation. Uh, even more, uh, in cases where they are a good choice, there are things that you need to figure out before even considering to migrate to a mono repo. You can't just dump everything into the same repository and turn it loose. You have to plan ahead and carefully consider what benefits they provide along with the challenges that might occur. Basically, there is no silver bullet. Now, that pretty much wraps us up. We'll catch you guys next week. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash completedeveloperpodcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at completedevpod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.